The book of Ecclesiastes will be in chapter 1, which is the appropriate place to begin a new book. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. (laughs) To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been done, or that which has been, is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see, it is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. Someone might contest that and say, well, what about 3D television? And I'd say, look around. (laughs) 3D was here long before 3D TVs. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified, excuse me, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realize that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. And I ask you, could there be a more appropriate back-to-school teaching? Let's pray together. Fathers, we open up this new book with a wealth of wisdom. I pray that you give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. May we understand these words in their context, in their original meaning, and and how they apply to us today. Oh, Father, I once again am struck by the wonder of your word and the power contained that in these words written on the page spoke by your spirit that reached so deep into our hearts and our souls we are so amazed by you father that you keep speaking to us you keep talking you keep pouring out your words and i just ask that we would hear you and i pray lord in this new season as we go forward as a church fellowship unless jesus comes that our purpose would become more clearly defined as a fellowship that we would have eyes wide open to the lost, that we would see those who are struggling in a fast-dying world, and that this would be a place, Father, of refuge and forgiveness and healing and love and compassion. And Lord, I don't ask that for some 
some idea of the church as, as an organized body somewhere, I ask it for each one of us as individuals, for we make up this fellowship. And we are a part of your glorious church. May we act that way. And may we receive your words now this morning. Holy Spirit, teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every year, like clockwork, toward the end of August, our parents loaded Ron and I into our family wagon, and we headed off to Sears. Sometimes JCPenney, just to mix things up a bit. But it was back-to-school shopping. Many of you have done that. Some of you remember that. But we trudged along behind our parents, realizing the unfettered months of summer freedom were fast coming to an end. The smile on my parents' face was... Just confusing to me. (laughs) I knew the summer was dissolving before me, and the grief and increasing pain of increasing knowledge was imminent. And I remember those back-to-school times. I'll tell you, I have to admit, there was something in me, and I think something in many kids, that likes it that kind of looks forward to it. Oh, there's some anxiety there, and there's some some worry there, and there's some sadness that summer's almost over. But there's also that sense that something new is about to happen. In fact, for kids, the first day of school is the new year. That's New Year's Day. It's not in January. I still don't understand why we made it on January 1st, in the middle of the winter. You know, the big change that happens in so many families and with so many kids is always in September. You see, for the students, September was the time of change. There came with it, there comes with it, an opportunity to be different than you were the year before. I loved that. Everything that happened the year before, the old reputation, the old behavior, even the grades that I so longed to forget were over, past, gone. And now it was a new year and an opportunity to try on something new. I'll never forget standing there in Sears trying on my blue and gold L.A. Rams jacket. And man, was that cool. It was, it was a football jacket. You know, I didn't play football, but it was a football jacket. So this year, I was going to go to school and I was going to play football. And I did. In that jacket, I ruined it on the first day of school there in the mud. It was not pretty. But I remember just that sense. I get to try something on. I get to look different. And more than new clothes and lunch boxes and peachy folders that we bought yesterday, all that old stuff is gone, and we got to try on a new identity. Well, that's what we get with the book of Ecclesiastes. You get to try on an identity. Perhaps different, especially among Christians, than one we normally wear. A different persona. And it's unusual, especially as far as the Bible is concerned. I don't know of any other biblical book that approaches the topic we're going to approach in this way. Trying on a different persona. But we'll get there. Before we try it on for size, I want to introduce you to the man under whom you will receive your tutelage as we begin this new school year. His name is Kohalip. Kohalip. Can you say that with me? You're going to hear it a lot. Kohalip. Very good. Kohalath. Verse 1, the words of the preacher, or Kohalath, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Verse 12, I, the preacher, Kohalath, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And Kohalath, the preacher, is our teacher for the next several weeks. Now someone might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't Solomon write Ecclesiastes? Who is this Kohalath guy? Well, all evidence strongly points to Solomon. 
All you really have to do, you don't have to think too hard, just read the first chapter as we have done, and you see Solomon all over it. This wise man, wisest of anyone who was ever in Jerusalem. Well, God said Solomon would be and was. Gave him more wisdom than any before him or any after him. So the evidence clearly points to him. However, Solomon names himself in the book of Proverbs. He names himself in the book of Song of Solomon. But never once does he name himself in Ecclesiastes. And that's interesting. He only refers to himself as Kohalath, the preacher. That's the Hebrew title for the book. If you were to open up a Hebrew Bible and could read Hebrew, that's what you would see there at the top, Kohalath, the preacher. Solomon comes out right up front and declares his kingly post. I was king over Jerusalem, he says. But all signs of his royalty fade away very quickly after the second chapter. You won't hear him mention it again. He draws back from that, wearing this persona of Kohalath. And we're only left with the words of the preacher, the teacher. And I want you to understand something about this book. It is absolutely brilliant teaching. So you're saying, it is Solomon. Yes, I believe it is. But he doesn't want us to think about that. He wants us to forget That he's the author. Why? Well, perhaps you've done what I've done with this book in the past. Perhaps you've fallen prey to the idea that the book of Ecclesiastes is a book of the musings of a warped, frustrated old man. You know, to quote from It's a Wonderful Life, that's what what Mr. Potter is called. A warped, frustrated old man. And that's how I've always thought of Ecclesiastes. Because it's so just depressing. You know? I mean, the second verse, vanities of vanities, all is vanity. Well, that's encouraging. Boy, I'm looking forward to this study. If this is where it starts, everything's futility and emptiness. But see, there's a misunderstanding there. I think it's partially based on what we know of the end of Solomon's life. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4 tells us, When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart has, was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. And because of that single verse, I've wondered aloud here in the barn, will we even see Solomon in heaven? He chased after other gods. His wives turned his heart. He was not wholly devoted as David had been. But I think the key word there is holy. Holy devoted. The Hebrew holy devoted is shalem. Shalem that means literally perfect. He was not perfectly devoted to the Lord the way David was. Well, who is? Who is? Shlomo was not shalem. Solomon was not perfectly devoted to the Lord. Who among us here can say honestly that you are perfectly devoted to the Lord your God? I'm not saying that we're not blood washed and seen as perfect by God, saints of the royal priesthood. We are. But who's wholly devoted? We want to be. Many of us long to be. But until Jesus comes... We will not be wholly devoted. It's always something we will be longing for. And like Paul, we cry out, Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am! Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, he says, through Jesus Christ our Lord.
So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. On the other hand, with my flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. Paul says that. We know that to be true of Solomon. He was not wholly devoted. And so because of that one verse, it's very easy to extrapolate that over the entire book of Ecclesiastes and say these are the bitter ramblings of an old man dying off, everything's vanity, and he's sad and frustrated, and can we just move on to the Song of Solomon? That sounds better to me. But we miss the point. Kohalath will teach us otherwise. Verse 2, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Please understand as we begin this book, these are not the words of a pessimist. These are the words of a preacher. Not the words of a pessimist. Solomon is not pinning his last bitter musings. These are the words of someone who is seeking to lead a people by teaching, by preaching. And it's fascinating to me. In his excellent commentary of this book, Derek Kidner writes, his probing is so relentless that he can easily be taken for a skeptic or a pessimist. His opening cry, vanity of vanities or utter futility, almost asks for it. But there's more to him than can be captured in a phrase or a motto. So much more, in fact, that at one time there were scholars ready to suggest that two, three, or even as many as nine different minds had been to work on this one book. Such are its cross-currents and swift changes, but they can all be seen as the insights of a single mind approaching the facts of life and death from a variety of angles. And this is absolutely key to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes, that Kohalath is not a pessimist, he's a preacher. And that's the definition of Kohalath, is preacher. It's one who convenes and addresses an assembly. Which is why the NASB chooses, and the King James Version chooses, preacher for the translation of Kohalath. One who convenes an assembly and then addresses them. That's why the Greek title given to this book is Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was the title given when the Septuagint was written. The Septuagint, you all know what the Septuagint is. I'd like to remind you from time to time, it's the Greek first Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Written by rabbis, Jewish scholars, who were also Greek scholars, about 280 years or so before Jesus came. And when they wrote it, translating Kohalath, they translated it to Ecclesiastes, the Greek word, which means one who calls an assembly. The root word of that is ekklesia, the assembly. That's what Paul calls the church, the ekklesia, the called out, those who assemble together, or those who are assembled together. So Kohalath, he calls an assembly for the purpose of teaching the people. And the book of Ecclesiastes is absolutely masterful teaching. It is a marvelous book. He's preaching a profound truth. But to do it, he takes a different tack than we see anywhere else in all of Scripture. And that's what I love about this. Kohalath invites us to try on the mask of the humanist. The mask of the humanist, not the atheist. He's not writing or teaching from the perspective of a man who does not believe in God outright, but the humanist who looks at God through the veil of secularism and skepticism. The person who assumes, yeah, there's probably God out there, but he is at a distance. 
The rest of Scripture begins with faith, or begins in a divine place, and then from there considers the natural man, the natural world, not Ecclesiastes. This book begins with the natural man, and gropes its way along to see if God might be found. To see if some meaning, some purpose can be discovered in this life. Koheleth begins there as the natural man, only aware of God from a distance. And the preacher is purposeful in this. Look at verse 3 again. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Or evolutionists would tell you, humanists would tell you today, four and a half billion years. The earth has been here a long time. And if we work hard enough as a people, we'll keep it here a long time. That's the heart of the humanist. The average person today who is not sure about God or, or rejects church and, and following after God, but you know, there's, there's got to be something out there, some power. But whatever it is, the earth has been here a long, long time. The preacher is, is stepping right into those shoes perfectly. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, returning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along on all its circular courses. The wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea. Did you know that was Bible? That phrase. Well, all the rivers flow into the sea, the humanist today would say. It doesn't really matter where you come from, who you are, as long as you know. We're all going to end up in the same sea together, which is not what Kohalath was saying. He's saying it's just kind of inane the way things keep going and going and going. And You know, the rivers flow into the sea, but the sea doesn't get fuller. Have you noticed that? Rivers go in, the sea just kind of stays. And the rivers flow in again, the sea just kind of stays. What's going on with that? He says, asking the question, the sea's not full. To the place where the rivers flow, they will flow there again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Oh, man, under the sun? That is a buzzword for Kohaleth. It's a favorite phrase he'll use throughout the book. And and it's the great subject that he undertakes. The world and all its opportunities that seem to lead nowhere without God. Where's the purpose? You know, where's the meaning? All that we could find it and discover it. And so Kohalath says, here, here's the mask of the humanist. Put it on. Let's try it on and see how it works for us. Let's take the natural root of humanity without God and talk about that for a few chapters, for a few weeks. Let's let's ponder this together. God-fearing people, listen closely. This book... Again, perhaps more than any other in Scripture, speaks the postmodern language of our culture. This one, you're going to hear questions and consternations coming up out of this book that you hear in the workplace, that you hear at school, that you hear among people in the secular world, because that's where he's coming from. This is the humanist cry for purpose and meaning in this world. The secularist just saying, I want to know that my life counts. I want to have a life that matters. Trying out everything possible to get that sense of value and knowing in the back of their mind is just leading to vanity. I can't get there. Kohalath asks questions that people 
are asking today. Questions that, honestly, a lot of us Christians might fear go a little too far. He pushes the envelope. Kohalath uses wisdom as his base camp. And from there, he, he goes out. He takes the role of the secular explorer. He goes to the outer rim of human experience, trying everything out and talking about how it works and what the impact and the result is before he ultimately brings us back to God, which is his intention through the whole book. That's where we're going. Don't forget that Ecclesiastes has its place in Scripture because God inspired it. Because the true author of this, Kohalath is not the author, he's the writer. The author, he was inspired by Kodesh Ruach, the Holy Spirit. The Hebrew for the Holy Spirit of God. Psalm 51, it's where David says, Take not your Holy Spirit from me, your Kodesh Ruach. And the Holy Spirit is the author of this book. God determined Ecclesiastes, Kohalath, should be in the Bible, and it's a profound placement of this book. In fact, I was telling Les the other day, it's profound in where we are as a church. Because for the next, I don't know, two, two, three months or so, we will sit in the seat of secular humanism. We will consider the questions the world is asking. We will be in the place where so many are today, where lost people, and I mean that with love and respect, people who don't know the direction, this is where they live. And we're going to spend time there. And then guess where we're going from there? To the Song of Solomon, the love song of the Lord, calling out for His people. It's beautiful. If we start with the secular humanist, however, you need to understand, in the brilliance of this writing, there will be complications along the way. Because there are complications in humanistic thought. There's tension in this book between the natural man, Kohalath's preaching persona, and the spiritual man, his real self. There's a tension you can feel there. It's palpable, and you're going to hear it crop up from time to time. There's conflict between God as He is acknowledged and God as He is treated. And that's something to think about. God as He... Do I acknowledge God differently than I treat God? You know, do I worship and fall before Him and, and pray to Him and, and sing to Him in one setting but treat Him completely differently the rest of the time? It's an interesting thought. There are even some superficial contradictions in Kohala's words. Oh, not contradictions that cannot be explained, but here's the bottom line. These are all typical of someone groping their way through mysteries, trying to figure out. And so he puts on this mask of the secular humanist and begins to grope. And as he's groping, shows the complexities and the mysteries and the confusion of a world without God that we might walk along with Him and see it. And as He does so, the good news becomes more and more and more apparent. You see, what He does is brilliant. Again, He takes this whole idea of a world without God and He paints the picture so clearly that all you can see is God. That all you're left with is God. Because without God, this is you will never figure this out. Paul put it this way in Acts 17.26, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. 
if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. Do you remember the day before you gave your life to Jesus? you remember how far away that life seems from where you are now? Do you realize how close you were to Him in that moment? Remember this. When you have brothers and sisters and family members and friends who don't know the Lord, they are this close. They're this close. He is right there. He is a breath away. He's a statement away. He is a heartbeat away from any lost person, which should make our job rather easy. All we got to do is tell him about it. He's that close. Now, in spite of this secular humanistic mask, we begin to learn a thing about God. In fact, we're going to learn two major areas, and I'll talk about this for the rest of our time this morning, two major areas in the book of Ecclesiastes from our teacher, Kohalit. We're going to learn about Elohim, and we're going to learn from experience. Those are the two primary areas, Elohim and experience. Let's talk about those for just a minute. In fact, this is going to be like going through the syllabus. Since we're at the beginning of the school year, let's, let's check out the syllabus of the book of Ecclesiastes. Part one of the syllabus, the expression of Elohim. The expression of Elohim. Why Elohim? Well, why not Yahweh? Why Elohim? Because the spiritual nature of Koheleth peeks out from behind the natural mask to talk about God, but he never names him. This is one of the few books in Scripture, along with Esther, where the name of God is never spoken. Yahweh. That tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H, of the Hebrew language. The name God gave to Moses. I am that I am. You go tell him, I am is my name. And so Moses did, and that was the name that they would call him by. And Kohalath never once cries out the personal name given to the people by God. Why would he? If he's wearing the mask of the secular humanist who is distant from God, why would he name God personally? And so he doesn't. He gazes through the veil of the humanist who has no immediate personal experience or relationship with God at all. And again, it's just brilliant teaching. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2. He writes, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of Elohim. For Elohim is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Hey, little side note, just because your first hour and you got up this early. A little treat. I won't, I won't share this next hour. Genesis chapter 1. God, all the way through Genesis chapter 1, is Elohim. Genesis chapter 2, it's Yahweh. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 1, God is Creator. Standing at a distance, creating all things. Day after day after day. The six days of creation. On the seventh day, God rested. And then in chapter 2, we get personal. He goes back and retraces God's creation of man. And it's personal. And now, it's Yahweh. But in this book, again, it's only Elohim. The distant word for God in Scripture. Not the personal name, but the distant calling of God, Elohim. And the humanist, again, might acknowledge a distant higher power out there. A lot of evolutionists say, yeah, something had to get this going. We're just not sure what it is. So there's a distance. But from this perspective, we learn some things about Elohim, about God. Number one, Elohim is expressed in this book as the Creator God. We are reminded that try as we might, we cannot explain the mysteries of the natural world. 
We just can't do it. We've tried. We've gone after it. We've studied it. And not only can we not explain the mysteries of nature, we can't control the mysteries of nature. We cannot shape it into our own image. Ecclesiastes 7.13, he says, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what He has bent. Look at the eastern seaboard. In fact, I was just reading in the news this morning, an article came out talking about this year being the most devastating year of natural disasters in America's recent history. All the things that are going on, from from heat waves to floods to famines, problems in this culture. And, And by the way, I just find it interesting the category one force of Hurricane Irene. Now, now there's a lot that was, you know, some say it was over, overblown before it came in. We'll, we'll tell that to the still numbers of people, thousands of people who still don't have power this morning. Those whose entire cities are flooded. I mean, this thing did some serious damage. But I don't believe damage was the point of Hurricane Irene. I think it was, again, a wake-up call. Amen. And I find it fascinating that both now earthquakes and a hurricane have hit the seat of our government on the East Coast. Hello? Knock, 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 knock. It ain't Mother Nature making waves, my friends. It's Father God. Jesus said in Luke 21-25, there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the waves and the sea. So creation, it's beyond our control. We can't bend what He's already bent. We can't straighten it out. We we can't hold back the waters. We don't have this power. We realize this. Go from, from the waves to the womb. Again, the natural world, without a creation or a creator, makes no sense. We can decode DNA, and yet we cannot decipher what makes us conscious beings. Why are we conscious as opposed to the animals? Why do we think when they don't, why do we surmise and question and work out things in our brains and animals can't do that? They don't have the consciousness that we have. And Ecclesiastes 11.5, he says, Just as you do not know the path of the Spirit and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. What? Kohelet says, you can't figure out where the Spirit gets into, into the man. You don't know. You can't make sense of it. You don't know the ways of God who makes all things. Kohelet says you can't understand the world without the Creator. And so the humanist has has a single option. They have to settle for life as a mystery. Secular humanism leaves you standing there saying it's a mystery. And you know, at first that sounds nice and romantic, but give it some time, it starts to drive you nuts. We have a problem in my house. And it has the name of Kindle. The electronic Amazon Kindle, you know, you can download books and Cheryl just loves it. And she's gone ballistic. And she's got like four series where she's read the first book in the trilogy and the second book is not out yet. And I'm telling you, she's getting hard to live with. (laughs) Again, I won't share this when she's here. But you understand. I mean, feel my pain. The reality is we don't like a mystery. We like it at first, but we want it to be solved. And the humanist has no answer. You've got to just hang with it being a mystery. And it grates at the very heart of humanity. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. What does that mean? It means blaming God as a cop-out. 
Because God made us straight. He made us to function the right way and even righteously. But we have sought other devices. God made us right, but we've messed it up. And we've invented all kinds of reasons for the ills of society without recognizing, gang, we are the problem. What's the problem in America today? Americans. (laughs) Blame the President. Blame the Congress. Hey, we put them there. Talk about the people's choice. We get what we pray for. And what our Creator has done is frustrated us in our own devices. Kohalath goes so far as to say God has set us up for failure. Yeah, He did it. Look at verse 13. I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. Amazing. It's God's fault. He did it. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, striving after the wind. What's crooked can't be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. God did this. It's His fault. He set us in this world, mysterious and enigmatic as it is, without any reasonable answer outside of Himself. He set us up. (laughs) Praise God. He really did. And so Elohim is not only expressed as the Creator God, He is expressed as the Sovereign God. Kidner says all this comes from God, the general web of life and its minutest strands, whether to our liking and our sense of what is fitting or not. And there's a word that rings throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, like an annoying bell, just just gonging through this preacher's teaching. A word that describes the act of trying to live against the truth of Elohim's sovereignty, futility. Vanity. The Hebrew word, Abel. Abel. Like an Abel ringing. Saying constantly, vanity, foolishness, futility, Abel in the Hebrew. This word futility or vanity in your Bibles. It means literally a breath or a vapor. When he says vanity of vanities, he's saying vapor of vapors. There's nothing to a vapor. Breath of breath. Go ahead and breathe out a breath. Where does it go? Do you see it? It's gone. It has no substance. And that's what he says. This world is. God has put us in a world that without Him is absolutely a vapor. Meaningless. Look at verse 2. Again, vanity of vanities. Look down in verse 10. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. He's not talking about, by the way, inventions, new things, the internet, all of our technology. All of that is based on things that have always been. And every time we think we're getting off in a new direction, you know what happens? We go right back to the old man. What has the internet done? This is going to revolutionize life. And you know what it's done? Nothing but take us right back to sin. Same old sins just played out on a different stage. Verse 11, There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Things done are forgotten. History teaches us nothing because we're not paying attention so we don't know what's come before. 
We don't truly understand what has been accomplished before us, how great it is, the things that have been done. We all approach the world, when we approach it with this human mask, everything is vanity. And I can say, I want my life to have meaning. You know, I really want my life to count for something. And Kohalit says, fat chance. I want to have purpose. Good luck with that. <laughs> you can try as you might. Let, let me ask you this question. Who was number one? See if anybody knows this. Who was number one in the news in 1938? Number one person named in 1938 of anybody else in the news cycle. Oh, you say Hitler. Actually, Hitler was number three. Eleanor Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Eleanor. Eleanor. Well, I'm not sure where she was, but I know that, that her husband, the president, yeah, he was second. Huh? Patton wasn't named, in, not even in the top five. Gandhi, not in the top five. Hmm. Hmm? Stalin. Stalin, no, Mussolini was number four. Who was number one? <laughs> An undersized, crooked-legged racehorse named Seabiscuit. <laughs> Seabiscuit was named more than any other person, celebrity, even horse, of the entire news cycle of 1938. This scrawny horse that did amazing things, truly. You know what? His trainer's name was Tom Smith. Tom Smith was the greatest racehorse trainer of his day, perhaps of any day. What he did with this horse is astounding. What he did with several horses. Tom Smith died in obscurity. Only his family showed up for his funeral. Nobody else. What did he accomplish? Great things, but how quickly they are forgotten. How many of you remember Theudas? Oh, he was a big name back in Jesus' day. In fact, the Pharisee Gamaliel said in Acts chapter 5, verse 36, For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be someone, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census. That was right around Jesus' birth, remember? And he drew away some people after him, and he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. Who's Gamaliel talking about? False messiahs. Men who rose up before Jesus, right before Jesus, to try to make a name for themselves. And they fell apart. And Gamaliel goes on, In this present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone, these Christ followers. If this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. How many of you remember Jesus? How many people in the world have heard the name Jesus, are aware of Jesus? There's a life of purpose. There's one who showed us meaning. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Kohalath points out the sovereignty of God in the very futility of life. And again, he says, He did this to us! God made life this way. Why? Why, Lord, would you plop us down on this planet knowing that we were going to find life futile? So that we might be drawn to Him. So that we might be pulled back to our Creator. And one Messianic figure, He did come. Precisely fulfilling every Hebrew prophecy of His coming. And He lifted up, or was lifted up, above the feudal fold of humanity. 
He said in John 3.14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. John 12.32, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to Myself. And that's what Kohalath is doing. He is showing us our futility. God placed us here in a position that without Him, we will never have meaning. Without Him, we will never have a sense that anything matters at all. Elohim is expressed as our Creator, He's expressed as Sovereign, and He's expressed as incomparably wise. The incomparably wise God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says He made everything appropriate in His time. He also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. It's a marvelous verse. What he's saying here, gang, is he created the human heart to sense eternity. Do you sense it? I mean, stop for a moment. Even aside from faith, haven't you always been aware that there's more? Haven't you always kind of thought, yeah, there's there's got to be more than, than this life. And God did that. He put that sense in the heart of every person. But, Kohala tells us, he left us unable to fully comprehend it. (laughs) which is another great thing He did. The infinite, incomprehensible to the finite, natural mind. But we sense it anyway. We know there's eternity, we just don't get it. And as I've shared in here before, we can almost get eternity going forward, the idea of living forever, because we don't like the idea of our demise. So we like to keep going forward. But eternity before us, that freaks us out. God has always been. What? How does that work? Because we all had such a finite beginning. And so looking back, and God did that. He knows eternity. He has existed in eternity. Forever. You know, as far out that way as that way. And it's mind-bending to think about it, but God's given us just enough that we might hunger after Him. And our greatest brilliance then is reduced to absolute foolishness. Ecclesiastes 7.23, he says, I tested all this with wisdom. And I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. Note that. The wisest man to have ever lived aside from Jesus said, I tested this wisdom and it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I'll tell you what, if Solomon can't discover it, you ain't discovering it. If he can't figure life out through wisdom alone, you're not going to figure out life through wisdom alone. The wisest man in all history even said, wisdom, human wisdom, is lacking. Paul picks up on this. 1 Corinthians 1.20, he says, Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And he's talking about the foolishness of the cross. Again, I'm a little ahead of myself. This God, Elohim, draws the mind and the heart of man by the foolishness of a man lifted up and crucified. But Kohalath doesn't stop with the expression of Elohim. That's the first part of the syllabus. The second part, and we're going to go through this real quick. The second part is the experiment of experience. We see all these things about God. 
And it's frustrating. God has placed us in this place. But what happens in this place? The experiment of experience. And he experiments with human wisdom only to discover ignorance really is bliss. You want to be happy? Be dumb. (laughs) Dumbest people in the world are the happiest. Those who know the most are the ones who really do. And that's what he means at the beginning. He says in verse 16, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. My mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I realized this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. The more you know, the more pain you will know. The more you understand, the more frustrating life can be. If you pursue wisdom for wisdom's sake, you will wish you never did. So should I not pursue wisdom? Not for wisdom's sake you shouldn't. But if you're pursuing knowledge for the sake of knowing your Creator, Knowing your sovereign, knowing his wisdom, totally different thing. Pain becomes washed over by purpose. And suddenly, there's meaning there where there wasn't meaning before. But Koholeth will say, in this mask of the humanness, whatever wisdom might do in this life, it does nothing for me at the end of this life. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head. But the fool walks in darkness. We walk through that. Proverbs talking about the difference between the wise man and the fool. Yet, here's an area where they are exactly the same. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? (laughs) So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. You can be as smart as you want, you're still going to die. You can be as stupid as you want, you're still going to die. The wise man and the fool both end up six feet under. Might as well toss the mask of the wise out for the mask of the fool. And so he experiments with human pleasure. He tried out wisdom, and then he took his wisdom with him and tries out human pleasure. Hey man, if this is all there is, if it feels good, do it. Man. And I've shared before, if I didn't believe in Jesus, I would be, oh man, I would be one messed up dude. Because I would be doing everything I could to get every ounce of pleasure out of this life knowing I only had a certain amount of time, and man, I might as well make it good this go around. And that's what he tries, human pleasure. Back in verse 1 of chapter 2, Come now, I'll test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it's madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. How many have said that? I can handle it. And how to take hold of folly until I could see what good is there for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. The experience of wisdom fails. And experiential pleasure fails. So, we might as well work hard. 
and accomplish something, do something with our lives. And so he experiments with human labor. Verse 4 of chapter 2, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. Notice it's all for himself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. And he goes on and on till down in verse 11, I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind and there was no profit under the sun. Wow. These experiments, yeah, quit, I'm done. These experiments are all abject failures. Wisdom fails, and pleasure fails, and hard work fails. And the conclusion, my humanist friend, is the same for all people, wise or dumb. Life is futility, and there's nothing for it. And if those experiences aren't enough, Two unavoidable and tenacious experiences that eventually dog even the most diehard humanist, death and evil. Death and evil. Skip over to chapter 4, verse 1. I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So, I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. Wow. Bummer. Oppression, evil, tears, sorrow, death. Indeed, he says in chapter 7, verse 20, There is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. And once again, we're back to the problem. Everybody sins. Verse 3 of chapter 9. He says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives and afterwards they go to the dead. Nice. So how's this experiment working? (laughs) Wisdom, pleasure, work, evil, and death all leave a person in silent despair. Ultimately, it's existentialism, shouting out, vanity of vanities, everything is foolishness, everything's ridiculous. And if this futility isn't enough, stripping off mask after mask after mask, he brings us to the place where he says, and you know, on top of this, you don't even know when you're going to go. You're going to die. You don't even know when. You could step out of the barn and get struck by a rock that one of Leslie's you know, unruly children <laughs> throws across the parking lot and hits you just right and like Goliath, down you go. You don't know. He says in chapter 9, verse 12, a man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Man, Kohalath, lighten up. He takes us to the very edge. But wait, listen. These are not the words of a pessimist. They are the words of a preacher. And by the time we get to the end of the sermon, he has masterfully led us right where he wants us. Where's that? 
to final judgment. <laughs> final judgment? Yeah. That's where we land. When we are ready to stop pretending that this mortal life is good enough for us, we who have that, that undeniable sense of the eternal, Kohalas says, Now, O humanist, stripped of the lies of bogus humanity, now you are ready. Ecclesiastes is not the venting of a bitter old Solomon. The purpose of the preacher is to take godless living, living without God, stripping it down, and laying us bare before God. Like the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And that's where Kohalath takes us to judgment. we got to deal with God. Go over to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet, know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. (laughs) What a great parental thing to say. Hey, go out tonight, enjoy your friends, have fun, but I will know everything you do. I will be aware and, and, and pay attention. Whatever you do, there will be consequences, good and bad. Have fun. <laughs> Verse 10. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life, they're fleeting. They go by so fast. Chapter 12, verse 13. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God. Keep His commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And listen, don't miss this. That's good news. After all of this, we come to judgment. And how is that good news, preacher? We might say to Kohalath, it's good news. Because just when we thought nothing mattered, we discover everything matters. Everything matters to God. Every minute detail of our lives matters to our Creator, our Sovereign, our Most Wise God. Everything matters to Elohim, who would be called by us Yahweh or Yeshua, Jesus. Everything matters. Kohalath leads us marvelously into this quicksand of human experience to the absolute rock of absolute truth in an absolute God for whom everything absolutely matters. Everything, everything. Good and bad. Every thought, every action, every deed, every aspect of our lives matters to God. Well, I'm still not getting the good news in that because if I'm standing on every little thing in my life, I can be destroyed. Yes, you can. On this rock of judgment, you can absolutely be destroyed. Or... On this rock of judgment, you can have the good news of eternal salvation, of being saved. Because everything matters to God. Cool. 
See how happy we got all of a sudden? (laughs) Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without sin to those who eagerly await Him. We come to the end of all things. And Kohala says for the humanist, I'm sorry to tell you, we've worked it out, we've gone through it, life is futile. But for the saved, for those who have given their lives over to God, who have recognized their meaning, their purpose in Him, everything matters and life is eternal. The person whose sins have been washed away by the blood of the one lifted up. The person who discovers that everything matters in Jesus Christ. This is not just another school year for us. Not just another go-around of, of putting on a new outfit or trying on a new mask. What the teaching of Kohalath does for us is to take us in a direction to real life. And that's the direction we're headed in the study, but it's also the direction, game we are headed in our lives. We're going to that rock of judgment. We are going to stand in that place where everything matters personally, intimately, to God. And the question is, will you stand there as a humanist saying, well, I tried everything? Or will you stand there as a believer in Jesus just saying, I fall before you in your mercy and your grace because you alone matter. The choice is yours and the choice is mine. But know this, if you choose Jesus, He is able to make us stand, His brother Jude wrote, in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. Father, we look forward to walking down this road. We look forward far more to just standing before Jesus. And we long for that. We look to that. We still keep that ever present in our minds, Your imminent return, Lord Jesus. But we ask this simple prayer that as we walk this road, as we live these lives, that the purpose and meaning and the things that that we so desire to have matter would find their place in You, Lord that we would find our purpose in You. And that we would express that joyful meaning of life, not futile, but eternal, to everyone with whom we come in contact. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.